What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at theringer.com. And joining me on the other line, yes, sir, it's Andy Greenwald. Oh. Oh, what's up, Andy? It's a very special episode of The Watch. Uh, it's Monday. I hope everybody's enjoying their long weekend. But we wanted to make sure that we got after this We Own the City series finale. Uh, it's probably collectively me and Andy's favorite show of the year so far. And to celebrate it, we have George Pelicanos, the one of the creators and showrunners, the showrunner of the series. And it's George's fourth time on The Watch. He's one of our favorite writers Obviously, he's done tremendous work on uh, The Wire and The Deuce, but is one of our favorite crime novelists over the last couple of decades. And and The Sweet Forever remains maybe one of our formative texts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit about the show? I mean, we talked to George for nearly an hour and we hit almost every major facet of the show, including the finale. But if if you wanted to share a couple of thoughts, let's go for it. Well, yeah, I think the thing about the show that I found so striking at the end was both how it managed to do two things at once. It and it returned us to not just a city, but a style of storytelling that we have been missing since The Wire, right? We were back on the streets of Baltimore where both sides of <laughs> both sides of the crime ball are full in effect on the show and sometimes in some surprising ways. Um, but also more than just the setting and some very familiar faces. Simon and Pelicanos' ability to tell a story as diffuse as this, as digressive as this, as wide as this, but with such laser-sharp focus that you feel you are learning as much as possible about something that is still fundamentally unknowable. I mean, like The Wire, We Own the City is a show about systemic corruption, systemic problems. And it tells a story that, has no solution with their trademark mix of kind of like hopelessness and joy somehow. These people are alive despite the circumstances, um, despite monstrous acts and despite monstrous context. 
I found, though, this series to be so rewarding because of its, um, I guess it's brevity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to say that it's it's brief considering every episode of the six is packed. It's like 59 I think we minutes. mentioned that it had the the energy and the pace and the momentum of a tightly scripted British crime yeah. show that goes four or six episodes. Yes, absolutely. With now, and this is a new element, with some of the cinematic style of, as George talks about, his favorite 70s crime films, thanks to the director, Reynaldo Marcus Green. But it was so focused in its way, you know, that the things that the show built to, not in the penultimate episodes as it happened on The Wire or in the fourth season as happened with The Wire, but just after six episodes to see the arc of this, a story that was that forecast its ending for the most part, right? That w- was spoiled by Wikipedia, that used court transcripts and wiretap transcripts for huge swaths of dialogue, still found a way to end in a way that felt really resonant and moving and complete. You know, I, mean, I think I'm really struck by that. It, it's in some ways it's very tight. It's, it's like, it's got like a middleweight's, you know, agility and, um, kind of like it's the way it like dances around the ring. You could say, oh, this is just a very specific Baltimore story about these very specific cops. But I would say that I think that this is a sweeping epic mm-hmm. about the ultimate degradation of 21st century policing. And it, it's, I don't think that that's an overstatement to say that. I think that tracking Jenkins coming out of the academy throughout his time as a beat cop into these uh, plainclothes units and to his ultimate end is it's just been breathtaking. And one of the things that I think you and I grapple with a lot when we read crime fiction, when we watch crime shows, when we watch crime films, is the um, tension between how much they romanticize the behavior that that they're depicting and basically intoxicate you with the viewer, you, you the viewer, with the behavior that you're watching. And I don't necessarily want to watch things that are just indictments of everybody mm-hmm. all the time. You know, I, I think that there is a sort of compulsion to entertain no matter what when you're telling a story visually. That being said, I just don't know that I've ever had the intellectual and emotional experience of the crime story like I did with this where I can, I think obviously like in a very, very small community of people like the Wayne Jenkins stuff has become meme-worthy and how funny and electric and scary Bernthal's character is in this show and how amazing his performance has become. His is, but you are never not thinking to yourself, this guy's a fucking demon. Like you are just the entire time, just like, honestly, it's just the level of how appalled I was watching this. And honestly, like the, the way it kind of has changed the way I think about like (laughs) the systems around us and specifically law enforcement has just been uh, pretty profound. And so it was really exciting to talk to George about all of those things. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I love the fact that, I mean, we, we talked to George about it, but like, I think John Bernthal's performance is one of the great TV performances of this century. I think it is electric, it is magnetic, it is all-consuming, it is physical, it's just a marvel. But I don't feel any, like, moral ambiguity, nope. you know? I mean, you know, like, Jaws wasn't named after Roy Scheider's character. You know what I mean? Like Jaws was named after the shark. Yeah, and I don't I mean, think anybody under- was got confused about who they are. I'm not saying this. You're, you're not the straw man. No, I understand I why I, he's seductive, but I was not seduced. I was. I understand why he is yeah. seductive to other cops around him in the, sure. as a character and in this show. But I didn't find myself. I, there's no moment of Henry Hill is taking Karen on this date. 
you know, or yep. something like that. Like there's, it doesn't have that feel. Well, he, he goes on a date. Um, in, the, sure in the champagne room with a, with a with a with an undersized stripper. So I mean, like there there's romance in the show. No, I uh, I think the other thing about it is that it I was seems just like so he grateful. has a lovely time at that Harbor Hotel, the Inner Harbor Hotel. Yeah, a lot of good stuff happens there. Um, great meals out on the patio. Um, he this is a grown folks show. You know what I mean? Like in a way that I just appreciate so much, and I. The Wire was as well, but Simon and Pelicanos are a little bit older now too, and are looking at it with their own life experience and the experience of making TV in this city for so many years, as George talks about with us, and having a very confident hand on how to not just, you know, not just uh, pick up like, or, you know, have a dalliance with heavy hitting issues or important civic concerns. Like, that's what fuels their storytelling. And they go, they approach this this material absolutely like with open eyes and open hearts and open ears. It does not feel didactic in any way, but it feels it feels responsible, you know, which is a, which is a complicated word to use when you're talking about art that is also, as we're referring to with the Wayne Jenkins performed character, like this is a very entertaining show. Mm-hmm. But it just, it feels, it feels confident and responsible and thoughtful and in control in a way that I really, really admire and appreciate. And, you know, you're referring to the difference when you're talking about the similarities between this and a tightly paced uh, British procedural types of shows that you and I both love. And every every year there's like at least one or two that pops enough for us to talk about on the podcast. One of the things that, make, that makes those shows ultimately really, really great, I think, is just the the craft. Like the people who make those shows and make them well know how to write teleplays, you know what I mean? And know how to be efficient with it in the same way our favorite novelists do. Um, This isn't exactly that because when given the choice to showboat or, you know, bring the, bring the house down with like a third act, whatever, these guys went to the courthouse transcripts or the proffer session transcripts. You know, they, they never steer things towards drama, even though they are working as television writers, you know, and in the wrong hands, that could be disastrous. It would be disastrous. And it's just not what it is. They're just so good at what they do at this point. And I just, I feel like the show, this, the show was kind of a gift. We are in good hands with George Pelicanos. So Andy, let's get into our interview with the creator and co-creator and showrunner of We Own This City, George Pelicanos. I'm just overjoyed and thrilled to be joined by one of our favorite writers, one of our favorite guests, making his, I believe, fourth appearance on the podcast. One more and he gets the five-timer smoking jacket, uh, who is joining us us today in his capacity as one of the co-creators and the showrunner of our favorite show of the year, HBO's We Own This City. George Pelicanos, welcome back to The Watch. Thank you. It's good to see you guys. George, you know, uh, Andy and I adore this show. Uh, this is this has really been kind of a thrill for us to talk about it over the last couple of weeks. I even when I start talking about it, I can feel hints of my Philadelphia accent coming out. So rich is that Northeast Corridor accent work in this show. But let's start at the beginning. You know, you obviously worked on The Wire. The Wire ended in 2008. And the action in We Own the City kind of picks up essentially where the previous show ends. But there's been this decade plus time away from the streets of Baltimore. So I was curious, what brought you you and David back to this to the streets of Baltimore? Uh, there was more to say. And we felt like, you know, we always ask each other, why, why are we going to do this? Because even though 
it's it's six episodes and it goes by by in a flash. It, we worked on it for three years. You know, it's a long time out of your life to to do something that's inconsequential. You know, so for David, it was it was the continued failure of the drug war, and um, as as always, we we come at it from kind of two different perspectives. He's more of a macro guy. And um, and I'm a little bit more of a micro guy, and that like I like to dig into the individual characters and and that sort of thing. But in terms of thematically, you know, I I felt like the the thing to discuss beyond the drug war was that you know what is police corruption, and the obvious thing is taking money, you know, that sort of thing, uh, confiscating drugs and reselling them out on the street, and those are bad things. But to me. The corruption is, um, well, let me just say, I live in a place, uh, I live in um, Silver Spring, Maryland, which is in a very wealthy county, but it's it's a divided county. And I live on the other side where mostly minorities are. And, and, and I see uh, all the time young people being pulled over and sitting on the curb. And, and, you know, sometimes in the middle of winter, after midnight for hours, while we wait for the drug dogs to come. And it's just harassment, you know, and to me that that's a bigger corruption because I've been seeing it for years. And and it's personal because I raised two black sons and a Latina daughter, and they've continually been uh, harassed by the police around here. So I wanted to look at that, too. And that's why so much of the stories in, in this, so many of the stories in this show are about you know, what happens when somebody gets pulled over and, and, and they get the, they get a few hundred dollars taken out of their glove box and whether it's drug money or just a pay, paycheck money, what happens to their lives after that? They get locked up for a couple of days. You know, um, it's an important story to tell. And uh, you used, um, I know one of your favorite actors to work with Thaddeus street to tell some of that story. So well in the, in the series, you know, where it's not just, well, for the cops, for Herschel and for Jenkins, some money from a glove box is some crabs and some top shelf liquor for one night. But for a working person who had the paycheck, his entire paycheck taken, there is a cascading series of devastating consequences with no safety net, no backstop for that. That's right. That's why that that's why that whole thread is in there with Thaddeus and, and his car, which I know you're yeah. to it, so I might as well tell you. That's an Impala SS94, and um, that car's sitting in my garage right now. Of course it is. <laughs> you, it's incredible that maybe this is the – this is the. I, I'm excited for, to have you on for the fourth time, but the danger is you know us as well as we know you now. So, yes, I was going to go there. I was going to razz you for the car. But more specifically, in the broader context of um, Justin Fenton's book was published about the true story behind the series. You and David um, you know, became interested, became attached. I was curious, though, about the decision for this to be your first solo gig as showrunner. You and David co-created it. He obviously was very involved, produced, wrote the finale. But this was your uh, this was your rodeo. Well, uh, well, let me correct that first because I was also a showrunner on the Deuce. That's right, but and you were co- technically co-showrunners on that, or is that just semantics no, at this well, point? We were we were on both on both shows. I mean, David's my partner, and. Um, and we, we split it down the middle, but I got asked first to do this by HBO. And, and then I called, I said, I'll do it if, you know, I can bring in my old team uh, from the wire, including David and Nina Noble. 
I didn't think I could do it without them, meaning they they were they certainly brought a lot to it. She doesn't get enough credit. You know, she's and and um and it was just good karma. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean I was I was a show I was a showrunner on this and you've done it. You know what that entails. It's a complete commitment to, you know, your whole life is it's twelve to fourteen hours a day every single day and it's pre-production it's production it's post-production you know it was great i loved it because coming back to baltimore we were working with crew that we worked with 20 20 years ago and for david and nina it's closer to 30 because a lot of these people worked on homicide and the corner and what was really gratifying there is we had people who who wandered onto set uh, on on the wire they were teenagers and they didn't want to leave. You know, they were just curious. And we eventually put them on as PAs. And now they're running departments. You know, that's that doesn't get talked about enough because um, how you impact people's lives when you run it, when you have these shows, right? Especially locally, you see it because it's our home. And you see people grow up and now they're middle-aged people with families. And the film business has let, afforded them the opportunity to have a career and also raise their families like that too. So that's pretty cool, man. That's incredible. Yeah. And though, I, I guess the, the, the connection to the early question was just that I assumed that you were the sole showrunner of this because of the car, because of that <laughs> moment, because I can't, ima- I couldn't imagine David ever allowing that much detail of a car to be in one of his shows. So maybe yeah, you guys worked it out. When it comes to cars and things like that, he lets me, he doesn't question anything that I, <laughs> And um, he, know, he knows too well. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have my sons with me on the show and, and one of my sons is a um, is an AD and the other one's in the art department. So they conspire with me on all this stuff. And we make sure that we get the right cars into the shots. Do, so do we get to ask what David Simon drives? Oh, man, he's the most uncar guy. Yeah, like, he's got a he's got a Lexus SUV like the fender is falling off <laughs> and. It's just scrapes all over it. I'm like, dude, you know, you've got you've got a hundred million dollars or whatever you got. Just go buy a car. Like, un- take that roll of cash in your pocket and start flipping the dollars off. He doesn't care. Uh, George, this is a, a different kind of cop than the ones we follow in the wire, and they've been militarized. They they figured out how to game the system and how to write reports and how to fend off litigation. And they're obviously, they're addicted to overtime. Were these kinds of plainclothes reunits rolling around the time of Bunk and McNulty? And why, why did they get introduced to this police force? Uh, yeah, they, they were around. And, um, they, you know, they, every city has them. We have them here in D.C., the Jump Out Boys. And they, they come, they roll out, and then they, they come out of their cars, and they, they put every, everybody up against the wall. And, and what you see in the show is they arrest everybody. You know, not just the guys who have the, who have the drugs in their pockets, and, and you know, then they can get they get the overtime pay for for showing up in court and all these things that it's it's it incentivizes mass arrest. So they've always been around. Um, the difference is that what, what, if you go back to the wire, remember there was a scene where Kirk and Carver or they're on a raid and they take a little money, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. And, and now, um, but that, and that was the worst thing they did. You know, they, they, 
they would rough up some people and things things of that nature. We saw all that, but it's it's magnified a hundred times now in twenty years. Uh, again, these guys aren't just stealing money; they're they're selling drugs on the street, and they're bilking the city for hundreds of thousands of dollars in overtime every year for each guy. You know, it's become you know it's just become rampant, and and that and that made it that further legitimized us going back and looking at it because. The guys who were trained back then and and worked in uh, in in plain clothes and so on are now running squad running departments and squads, and they were trained a certain way. You see it with Jenkins and when he comes out of the academy, and that's a real thing. They, they they at the academy they try to do a good job of of indoctrinating these guys about you know sensitivity training, yeah, racial dynamics, all that stuff, and then they put them with a sergeant who says. You know, Forget all that shit. Fuck all <laughs> yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to show you how to police. And the guy having treat Williams in there as, as Grabler was, you know, like a, it was deliberate because this is a guy who was in Prince of the city. Yeah. And one of our favorite films. And, and in that film, they, they, the, the IAD says to him, uh, did you guys take drugs too? And he, he was like, no, you know, like, it's an affront to him to think that any cop would take drugs. Yeah, we took a little money. And then to see how far it's come where they're reselling drugs back out on the street. And that was that was why we put Tree Williams in that role. He came in for essentially a cameo. We shot him out in one day. Um, but it was really worth it. Oh, my, He's like the, the, the cup of espresso after dinner. He, show, he comes in roaring off the bench just for those two scenes, and he's yep. just on fire. It just yeah, electrifies he's, he's the show. Good. George, one of the hallmarks of your books since the beginning, you know, because we love them and have read them all, and also from David's work, has been always kind of articulating an idea that there are, well, articulating nuance first and foremost, but that there are people in the police force who are generally decent people trying to do decent work even if they are up against a corrupt system or they are party to a corrupt system. That was present in The Wire as well. Since The Wire went off the air, um, I think you know our collective perception of the police and the role in American lives has changed significantly, um, particularly for those of us who you know have not lived in the shadow of Jump Out Boys and have lived a relatively privileged existence, uh, unaware of the level of harassment. Knowing all of this, when you went back into a story about police, how did you navigate that even finer line now? Because one of the things that is so striking about the show is that there are cops like Sean Suter, who, you know, is proud of the work he is doing as a homicide police, is doing the best that he can, despite some, you know, obviously it becomes the louder, uh, it's a long shadow, his past casts. But you are always attempting, I think, to articulate that nuance. And I'm wondering what it was like to do that in a show that was going to air in 2022. There are very few characters in the show that aren't, that aren't, real people, you know, based on real people. Steele is the only one who's a composite, the, the DOJ uh, investigator. Mm-hmm. But somebody like Kostopoulos, for example, who, who, by the way, I didn't make him Greek. He was Greek. <laughs> he's a good, he's a good guy. And he happens yeah. to be Greek. <laughs> I got to cross um, that off my questions then. We were know, talking the other day about how that K-Stop scene with uh, Herschel and Jenkins is a lot like... Um, when they're sending Karen down to get more f- to for the f- fur coats and Goodfellas, it's like keep going, keep keep going, and it's like, okay, stop, don't get out of the car, don't leave your phone. <laughs> yeah, he played that well. I mean, that that actually happened. They 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 took him into it. It was an alley. They took him into that we couldn't shoot in, but 
one cold night and they and they said well you know here's a what if like what if because jenkins was really grooming this guy and he said well you don't do that if you have a bad badge on your chest we don't do that shit and then he got reassigned right after that they they bumped him out of the unit the guy um who who unwittingly you know gave them the tracker in in the first couple of episodes he was they figured him out for being a straight arrow too and they wouldn't let him hang around when they were doing their dirt and and the guy that she goes to visit out at lincoln park who's been banished out there that happened also you know like and these guys that these guys that actually stood tall and complained they either got reassigned or they got they got put out the pasture you know? mm-hmm. but there was a lot of there was a lot of good cops that were complaining about this um but it went unheeded, as you as you can see. One of the reasons that these guys were op, uh, operated with impunity was they were actually doing a good job. On one hand, they were getting guns and, and drugs off the street, and this was in a time when uh, post Freddie Gray, when a lot of cops stopped getting out of their cars. So it was important for the department to have units like this that were producing, and they knew it. They knew that. They, meaning the GTF guys, they knew that as long as they did A, they could do B as well and get away with it. The, 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 the choice to depict some of the Freddie Gray stuff the way he did was very interesting to me, that a lot of that, the aftermath of the Freddie Gray um, uh, verdict is played through Jenkins' eyes. And it's a moment, interestingly, for him to be uh, a team player. Right, like You see the, the respect that the other cops have for him for grabbing his gear, jumping in a van, providing food and everything. And then you played it so subtly also with the reaction shots to some African-American cops who are seeing, you know, seeing this quite differently perhaps than the way he is as just like a binary, like them against us. Yeah. I think that, I think that they were, the black cops were probably much more conflicted about what was happening. And that happens in every, you know, then my book, Hard Revolution is all about strange as a young man trying to police his own people during the 68 riots. Mm-hmm. It's fair to say that, and it's not hyperbole to say that Jenkins acted heroically during the uprising in, in many, many ways. But then that night he went and looted a uh, Rite Aid drugstore for, for Oxy. <laughs> yeah. And, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And he shows up at step, washes up on Step's door, the bail bondsman, the next, the next morning, and they sell the drugs. So this guy was a very complicated guy. But one thing that, that since you brought it up, that was fortuitous for us was that, you know, if this squad had been all white guys, then it would have been a different show, but it, but it wasn't, it was, it was a few white guys and, and, and actually it was more balanced on, on black police officers, maybe, you know, five to three or something like that. That was a gift to us because then we didn't have to deal with the idea that uh, here's a bunch of uh, white cops who are assholes. You know what I mean? It, it's not about that. It's about, you know, blue versus the citizenry, what it's become. And again, we stuck to the, um, we stuck to the reality of it, which was fortunate. Yeah. And it's, you know, you talked about how, you know, this, this show tracks Jenkins from like essentially his first days on, on walking the beat to his, his downfall as part of GTTF. And then in between you see guys like Ram and Gondo coming in who are 
like for lack of a better term, kind of like gangsters. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, they're they're much more connected to the streets. I think they look at being in the gun trace task force as a means to an end. And there's even conversations, that conversation they have in the car where he's like, when it ends, it ends. I mean, that's how, that's how uh, Avon and Stringer used to talk to each other, you know? And it, I thought it was, and I thought it was kind of fascinating that you've got these two cops who aren't even um, putting up the pretense of protecting and serving. They're not even kind of like gesturing towards any kind of original mission of the job that they're doing. Yeah, the, and and by the way, a lot of that dialogue was right straight off the wiretap verbatim. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, which made it easy for me, and I wanted to include it. I, I, the the nice thing about it, from a dramatic standpoint, is that all these cops had different personalities. You're right. Raymond Gondo were, were nihilists, basically. They they just they knew what was going to happen, and they just kept driving towards that wall. They didn't care. Um, Ward was a guy with a conscience. And and he really did throw $20,000 away in the woods before he went home that night because he didn't want to take it into his house. Um, and then Jenkins was was a family man. Um, he, he would leave a, a raid or, or, a, or a crime scene to go uh, help his kid out or go to a football game or something like that. Um, he also had women all over the city. Good dude was very complicated. And I don't think to uh, this day, you, you guys have seen all the episodes. He's, he's bewildered at the end. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, still doesn't understand the import of what he did, and he's in denial of it. Um, Herschel as well. Both of those guys were the two um, cops who didn't talk to the FBI. They got the longest sentences. And from jail, they're still, from prison, they're still... Uh, protesting their convictions and saying that they were innocent. They continued to. I, I know I'm in a clear space in a moment for Chris to talk about John Bernthal with you directly because I think it's really all he wants to talk about. But staying with this idea about Wayne Jenkins, the, the actual person then also as depicted on your show, there's a moment in the finale that I, I kind of can't get over. I've been thinking about ever since I watched it, which is the scene where he's with two of the other cops and they're, you know, they're, they're getting drinks, they're at the strip club, and he's just saying that he's not a dirty cop. And the other guys are looking at him like, are you insane? And he's insisting that he's a good person, you know? And it just reminded me of this moment that we're living in where on the, on the, on the right, in the American right, the worst thing in the world would be to, is to be called a racist. You don't examine your behavior. You don't consider any, have any empathy or consideration of what, where this is deriving from. It's just that how dare you besmirch me because I am a good person. And the resentment and grievance and just, you know, the wall that goes around anyone who is accused from the outside of, of anything. It was such a, it's a powerful scene in your show and speaks so much about the core of this very complicated guy. One of my favorite scenes is after they robbed the car wash and he's in the car with Sean Suter at the end, at the end of the episode. And he says, he's trying to talk Sean into taking the money. And he says, uh, you know, why shouldn't we for a city that doesn't give two fucks about us? Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't, you know, a folded flag's not going to feed my babies. And he, it's his rationalization for it. And in, in a way, it makes sense. I mean, I, I'm kind of proud of the fact that we let these cops make their case. Ursel does the same thing in the bar with, mm-hmm. with Nicole Steele. He says, you know, yeah, I got complaints. Show me a cop that doesn't have complaints. I'll show you a cop who doesn't get out of his car. Yeah. And then 
the last scene where we go back to the academy and he's talking to the and it's all the guys in there that we've seen that was david wrote that i didn't know he was going to write it um it wasn't something we beat out in in uh, the writer's room he just you know delivered it to me and i think it's i think it's really extraordinary I hope he doesn't listen to this because I don't want him to know that, you know, I'm giving him all this praise. But <laughs> but you knocked he, his Lexus, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I did put his Lexus down. That's shit wagon. He's got to <laughs> do something about that. Um, but it really, it worked. And you don't know, you don't know if something like that's going to work when you write it. You have to film it. And and I think it really worked because that's that was all in, in Jenkins' head. He's... These guys, these guys still look at him heroically. When in fact they all turned on. Him. I mean, there were there was there was a critic who said um, was was unsatisfied because the cops they started talking as soon as they got into the proper sessions with the FBI, and that's what happened. It's part of the story. They all they all turned on each other. They sang. Yeah. Um. And and it's and it's interesting because they were they were thick as thieves you know like when they were together brothers in blue but as soon as they put the bracelets on them they they It's started like, talking it, it, my impression from your show is that the cushiest job uh maybe on the whole east coast for a couple of years was being one of these guys defense attorneys you could just do your headspace meditation app while these guys just sang the entire symphony for the for the fbi i think we're the one who's like why am i paying you five hundred dollars an hour <laughs> um I want to get to Bernthal, but you know, first I wanted to ask you a quick question about uh, one of the formal uh, quirks, not quirk, one of the choices you guys made while making the show, which is this, I don't know, like almost this, it's like this intuitive kind of wandering timeline, the way that you, you treat chron chronology in this show and how it jumps from year to year, from incident to incident, and often unites these moments more thematically than um, narratively. So it's like, it's important to understand Jenkins, but at the same time, you know, some of it's coming out of interviews with other characters. Some of it's coming out of these documents that you kind of reference on the screen. I, I understand what it did to me as a viewer. And I understand the cumulative effect it had on my understanding of this story. And I thought it was profound, honestly. Can you tell us a little bit though about how you approach the the timeline, the, the the chronology, and the narrative of this show? I think my recollection is that um, you know we wrote the pilot together. I'll call it the pilot. It's first episode, and the idea was that it was going to be it was going to be chronological from that from then on, um, or we would go back and it would be chronological. But we made the decision because. If if it had okay, first of all, this is a national story. It just about a lot of people would know watching this what how it was going to end. That these guys were going to get caught and sent up to prison. We didn't want to train the audience to um, to watch that show because uh, it's not about you know it's not like Shield. It's a, Shield's a great show, but this isn't really a show about corrupt cops. It's about the why of it. How does it how does it happen? And the only way that we could show that is by jumping around in time effectively and without and by taking away that that element from from the viewer, like, oh, this is a thriller. I want to see how they get caught. And putting in the, the forefront of it is how did the department evolve? Uh, what happened 
within the department to to allow these the squad to operate. It was it wasn't easy. I mean, it was the most challenging thing we've probably ever done. In addition to having to, to stick to the facts and not get off off of that track, and the show, even though it was written that way, the show really got made in the editing room. Yeah, like we made a lot of changes in the editing room, and 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 I think it was post for this show was about four months for for six episodes, which is a long time. But that's where David and I, and Nina was there too. That's where David and I had. Um, the most intense discussions about what what we were going to use, where it was going to go, and um, and it was really difficult. and And I have to also include um, HBO, and I'm I'm not blowing smoke up HBO skirt, but they they gave us some really. That's where their notes were really coming from. Is they kept pushing us to make it more uh, palatable, mm-hmm. the timeline, and their notes were good. And David came up with the uh, the run sheets for Jenkins, which was effective. I thought we're working with an effects house. We finally figured out how to put that <laughs> put that over. Yeah, it it was a lot. It was a lot. You know, this episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there, you know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast, starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies, because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Oh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet, toes, come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use, from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... (sighs) Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. This episode is brought to you by the Disney Bundle. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new exciting movies and series, all for one low price. On Disney Plus, join the ranks of Captain Marvel, Captain Monica Rambo, and Ms. Marvel as they team up to save the universe in Marvel Studios' The Marvels and embark on an adventure into the futuristic world of Iwaju. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. And school is back in session for the beloved teachers of Abbott Elementary. The Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. They're better together. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Should we pivot to this lead performance that you've you coaxed out? Because yeah. So, Dana, uh, George, I just have to mention that I had Jamie Hector on a couple of weeks ago uh, after episode three. And I asked him what it was like working with Bernthal specifically in the car wash scene, but just in general. 
And he was very, very complimentary. And he, he was like, he was always moving. And I got this impression of this guy who almost must have been a force of nature on set because he's such a force of nature on the show. I, that's not as much of a question as much as it is. I think it's one of the most incredible performances I've seen on TV in recent memory. Did he show up with, with Wayne Jenkins in his head and, and doing his voice? And was it just fully formed? What was, what was the process like working with John? Well, he was always, he was always working. So, um, you know, he came early to Baltimore and he started making relationships with the police. We had this guy Dre on, on set that was, um, he was in the GTTF and he looked up to Jenkins and because of what, because of what happened in, and with Jenkins and all that, they, the, his career sort of got derailed a little bit because they, they, they broke up, you know, they killed the unit and, and Dre, but Dre is a diehard, you know, cop, thin blue line guy. He's written, you call He's got a show called the Razorbacks, which is a, the unit, these guys that are all big, tough cops. Right. And uh, he made a relationship with him and his friends. And a lot of those guys end up in the show. Dre's in it, but also the guy at the car wash who has that exchange with Jenkins. That guy's a cop. <laughs> the guy the guy who he's riding with uh, when he beats the shit out of this, this guy on the stoop, that guy's a cop. We used a lot of active duty cops in this show. And, and um, so Jenkins, you know, I mean, John was always working beyond what we offered him. And we always offer, uh, you know, we'll put you in contact with the police and do some ride alongs, that kind of thing. He didn't, he didn't really take us up on it. He did all this stuff on his own. He was super prepared. Um, and he brought stuff, little things to the scenes that honestly, I didn't know about. I mean, I remember one day and he was testifying in court and he came wearing a, a vest and said the police on it. And and uh, somebody came to set and, and said, no, no, that that would never they would never wear that, you know, in court. And we got to get costumes, you know, like calling out for the costume department like somebody had messed up. And, and John pulls a Polaroid out of his vest of Jenkins wearing that very vest in court. And he was testifying <laughs> like he knew and we didn't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he, his his physicality is yeah. just so incredible. I mean, the, the the name of the show is "We Own the City," and he he embodies it. The width of his of his walk, you know, the way he wears those Ravens shirts, like he just he is yeah. someone in just a way. Just the way he, he, he the way I love, love fucking... the Roger Rabbit out in the street. <laughs> oh my god! But even like the way he litters, like the way he just like throws bottles around, like like he just yeah. doesn't give a shit. He, exactly. He's like, I don't give a fuck. He throws that bottle before he goes in the bail bondsman's office. You hear it break. It's like, he's a cop. You know what I mean? There's nothing I can't do. And that was his, I mean, John, John's not method in the sense that you couldn't talk to him when, it, when after uh, you yelled cut, like it's not like he couldn't approach him. And, but he, um, he was ready and he had ideas and, and, and um, he wanted to do things certain ways that a lot of showrunners don't like. But I like it if it's coming from a place of um, of, of knowledge. You know what I mean? And and that's where he was coming from. He he his suggestion. I didn't let him do everything, but his suggestions were almost always good. And and we used a lot of his ad libs, which are hilarious. 
Is Yezer, um, was Yezer a, uh, yeah. a Bernthal original? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, when he calls the guy dum-dum, like one of the guys they arrest, you know, they sit down there dum-dum. Like, turns out Jenkins used to call guys dum-dum. I didn't know that. Jesus. He was asking a lot. He was asking these cops a lot of questions about Jenkins and things like, uh, did he like to drive, you know? And, and Jenkins always wanted to drive the car, so things of that nature. He brought a lot. He brought a lot to it, and and John's from D.C., so we had a, we had a, um, we struck up a friendship pretty quickly. He, I know some of the people he knows, and John was a guy who um, hung out on the other side of town growing up and got into a bunch of trouble by his own admission. And uh, he's just a, he's got a lot of life experience, put it that way. He, he's a genuine tough guy too. Like, he, you know, the, the nose that looks broken, it's yeah. really broken. Yeah. <laughs> See, we always figured that's a barrier for entry with us and him, but we are also, the three of us are all Quaker school boys too. So I feel like we could probably <laughs> bond over that, even if he ran from it in the other direction. Um, so, I, George, it wasn't just the car that made me feel your touch on the show. And this might just be total projection, so feel free to talk me out of it. But it's not as if you and David haven't worked with incredible actors before. I mean, even just on The Wire. I mean, you had Wood Harris and Idris Elba and Michael B. Jordan was there. And I mean, Wendell Pierce through the deuce with, with, with Franco and Gyllenhaal. I mean, you, you've worked with great actors before. You've also worked with great directors before who suited the material brilliantly. But there was something about this piece, and maybe it's because it was, you know, a limited, with the performance of John at the center of it, and then the direction of Ronaldo Marcus Green throughout, that I thought just elevated the cinematic language of this to a degree that was really striking, really wonderful as a viewer. But I always think of that, but I attributed that subconsciously, I think, to you, because I know from your writing and from conversations, just your love of of great cinema and filmmaking in a way, not to discredit David in any way, who has made some of the best TV of our lifetime, but right. has always seemed to, at least from the outside, approach it from a more journalistic perspective than a cinematic perspective. Yeah, I think, um, I, I put it this way, I was I was very happy that, to see that that's what Ray was doing. Mm-hmm. And we did talk about it. I encouraged it, but I didn't. And I didn't say I want you to do it this way. We did want it to look different than The Wire, mm-hmm. which was a much more documentary style, I think, than cinematic. But Ray Ray Greens from the beginning said, "I want this to look like a movie," and 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 there was the advantage of we had them for all the episodes, so it was one vision. Wasn't we weren't parachuting directors in in and out. And Yorona Orbach, who shot uh, the deuce for us, thinks the same way. They they collaborated, and I really didn't have to. I didn't have to step in much. I was just more of a cheerleader. Like, yeah, I love that. I love the way this is looking. And we chose Ray. Um, I had seen Monsters and Men, and I thought it was a, sort of a nuanced nuanced take on this kind of material. Um, I didn't see King Richard wasn't available for me to see and at the time that we hired Ray. But it was a plus that he had worked with John and they had a pretty strong relationship that helped that helped us as well. Um, and Ray was so Ray's kind of a quiet guy. He doesn't he, he's he's quiet on set, but you um, you have to I mean, I'm a firm believer in, in the writer producers being there every day on set. And we were watching, but we, we, you know, we kept our distance for the most part because he was he was getting what we wanted. 
and he actually a lot of writers aren't really great in the ed editing room but he gave us they you know the director gets first edit on all the episodes and he delivered us some pretty clean episodes uh from the editing room as well so i was super happy he's also a nice person which is really helpful for me it's how you treat the crew it's really right. you know that camera he has it it's it's like another jump out boy. Like it's always running behind them. It's running into these, through these doors. It's patrolling. It's looking under cars. I just thought it, it gave the, the series such a visceral feel. And it kind of did bring almost a, an updated new take on Prince of the City, on Serpico, on this like very urban cop drama. I thought that that was incredible. I was wondering whether or not that you guys had, whether you had like a common cinematic language of, movies that you liked shots that you liked like feels that you liked c camera moves that you liked together he's from new york and uh, my favorite movies are the new york 70s uh, 70s films uh, sydney lamette of course but also french connection yeah seven ups cross 110th street he knew all those films um we talked about it and it wasn't not at length we didn't screen films or anything like that together but he knew he knew the references, and um, and and there wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of trickery. Like I, I have a pet peeve about shots that are either shooting up into the air, or you got to put the camera on top of a building and you're looking down at everybody. And I'm I'm always thinking like, well, whose point of view is that? Right. That, that suggests to me that somebody's up on top of that building like a sniper or something like that. Like. Don't do it. You know what I mean? And, and he, he found a way to um, for the camera to tell the story in an or organic way. We have to, we're, when we're naming individual names who contributed to this, I think we have to talk about Wunmi Mosako too, because you mentioned mm -hmm. how Nicole, her character, was the only composite of all the people on the screen. After finishing the series, I was even more impressed by her performance and just thinking about how challenging it was in a lot of ways because she had to do a lot of expositional lifting uh, with the scenes that she was in, but she also, with her her eyes and her reaction shots, had to take in so much of the shit, basically, and have it change her, having gone through it in a way that was similar to what the audience went through, learning about things and experiencing them throughout and I thought her performance was so noteworthy, not just because of her, her her charisma and her ability and her strength, but her decision-making. Like, the, I kept talking about it, I think you heard her say this, this, the way that she smiles in the first episode. You know, there's a genuine warmth to her and a full person behind all of it that is just evident was really striking. And I think having now seen the whole series, it was it was essential to the, to the viewing experience. I have to admit, it's going to make me sound stupid, but... You know, I didn't really appreciate her until we got in the editing room and and saw these scenes over and over again. And, and like you say, the subtle reactions and the way her eyes would uh, when when she's talking to um, to Dominic, the the mm -hmm. head of the union, the police union, how her eyes sort of kind of like begin to cloud over mm -hmm. and the anger builds, but it never boils over. Um, she had, I would say, the hardest role because yeah. it is just a lot of listening and she, and she uh she did a great job plus she has a very very british accent and never once <laughs> slipped we didn't have to loop her dialogue or anything yeah that was unreal i mean even the best yeah. slip sometimes and you could tell she yeah. didn't 
I, yeah. I, I felt like she got to have the uh, the the sister line to get on with it, motherfucker. It was <laughs> it's your turn, motherfucker. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Sean Suter part of it because it hangs over the series. It's interesting. Like I um, watched this series initially, not knowing as much about Suter as I obviously should have, and in talking to Jamie, you know, did a, did a lot of research into it. This is a very knowing show. It knows every nook and cranny. You leave some ambiguity about what happened to Suter. Obviously, there is some ambiguity about what happened to Suter. There's been a documentary Sonia Soma made about this case. Yep. How did how did you... What kind of approach did you take, especially to those final moments of Suter's character? Because there is a degree of mystery about it. Yeah, it's a good question. We First of all, we did a lot of uh, research beyond what was in the book and uh and and what was reported in the newspaper and um david used his relationships with police officers who were um you know homicide detectives who were involved in investigating his death internally and we we know some things that the public doesn't know okay that's all i'll say there but to be respectful to the family, yeah, we made the decision to not show anything that that wasn't a- actually seen. We didn't deduce things and then just decide to shoot it that way. The way we decided to shoot it was there was a camera on one of the uh, houses on that street where he died, and we have the we have the recording of what the camera saw, so we shot that. Only, but when he disappears into that lot, and by the way, we shot it in the exact location where he was killed, which was a very, it was a triggering thing for our crew. Um, and and the camera saw him pacing back and forth behind this van before he went in there. Now, if you know from where he is, from his point of view, that's an open view into that lot. If somebody was there, if somebody was there, they would have seen him standing there pacing back and forth, a police officer, obviously. Which is one of the big things that leads us to believe that there was nobody there. Mm-hmm. Also, his partner that day, Bomanka, it only took him eight seconds from the time the gunshots went off to him finding Sean shot in that lot. And there was nobody there. Also, there was gun smoke hovered around him. Had there been somebody struggling with him and shot him, that gun smoke would have been dissipated by the action of the guy running away. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that lead us to um, believe almost 100 percent that he committed suicide. But we only wanted to show what we know. When I said 100, almost 100 percent, we only wanted to show what we New 100%. Yeah. How does that inform Jamie's performance, you think? I mean, to because he's got to know, right, as an actor. I mean, I suppose he can make a choice. But when you're playing that on the day of and when you're talking to him about what this, this guy is going through, I, I guess, I mean, it's possible to, for, for an actor to say, this is still a mystery and, and that. But, like, I, I was wondering about the absolutes that have to happen on set with an actor versus the absolutes of what you might depict on screen. Yeah, we, well, okay. So you take a show like the wire where we were writing as we were shooting mm-hmm. 
and and the actors didn't know what was going to happen until the script dropped that week. And we never told them. We didn't tell Idris Elba that he was going to be killed until that script dropped, episode 311 in uh, third season, which effectively is like you're giving the actor his pink slip. Yeah. Um, and the reason we didn't we didn't tell is because exactly what you just said is we didn't want the the actor to telegraph his performance, knowing that he was going to die. We didn't have that luxury with this. Sean, um, Jamie knew exactly what was going to happen, and it was in the news. Um, and there were some interesting moments. There's a there's a um, there's a scene where he is on a a call for a homicide scene, and uh, and he goes into this lot, and the lot was very similar in dimension to the lot that he would eventually be killed in. And I, and I went and Jamie and I both saw it. And, and there's just a little moment there at the end when, before he walks out of the lot that he kind of looks around. It, he's foreshadowing his own death. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing performance. It's so still, it's so quiet, but it's, it's, there's so much underneath the, uh, the tip of the iceberg there. Yeah, he's he's really good, man. And and you needed a guy who who did a lot of acting with his eyes, and that and Jamie's that guy. So George, with this, you know, as you said, this is this is over three years of, of work and commitment for a truly tremendous result. But you know, you're talking to us, so you know we're going to have to do it inevitably. Pivot and ask what else is coming from you in the future. And if we basically, I'll just ask selfishly, we've had some incredible work from you on on the small screen. But we still want a Pelicanos detective show. We we will keep saying this every week. We're we're going to keep asking for it and wondering where you are with that. For, you know, from your mouth to God's ears, right? <laughs> or, or or Casey Bloys' ears, Casey's. depending. Yeah, if Casey's listening. I mean, I, mean I, I have a I have an overall deal at HBO. I'm 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 ha- I would happily place any of my books there for uh, and I and I still want to do Derek Strange. You know, what yeah, I mean? that's the one, right? Yeah, um, but right now I'm. I'm writing a uh, an adaptation of a John D. McDonald book called The Last One Left um, with Megan Abbott. Oh, yes. That just got announced. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. We love Megan, too. Yeah, she's great. And uh, we're, we're both we're writing that together. And hopefully that'll go. We've written about half of it now. We know where we're going. For the big screen, I, I did adapt uh, the first Travis McGee novel, The Deep Blue Goodbye, for Fox. And that apparently is going also. Um, I mean, I, I've been waiting for Travis for a long time, and I'm so happy that it came uh, to you. Honestly, like this isn't just like publicist bullshit. Like <laughs> I read that book 40 years ago in my in the class that inspired me to become a crime fiction novelist. And 40 years ago, when I was you know 20 years old or 21, whatever it was, I said I want to make I want to make this movie someday. You know, having never done anything, I hadn't written any books, any screenplays. And I finally got the opportunity. Amy Robinson uh, came to me a couple of years ago. She had read that I had noted that book as an important book in my development. And she she had the rights. And they've been trying to make it for 20 years. Yeah. And, and Mangold was DiCaprio, Christian Bale. These are all people who yeah. were floating around it over time. Right. I mean, they're ready to roll Christian Bale towards ACL and it collapsed the project. But those were all contemporary. All those scripts were contemporary. And I said to Amy, I'll do it, but 
on one condition it has to be period right because it doesn't the character doesn't make sense in contemporary times and i think i nailed it man i mean i think it's a really <laughs> yes I love it. I mean, I, I love also that it's period because the thing when I tell people, and I had a similar thing 20 years ago where I, I got off eBay, I got the box of all of them. And there's like 20, however many Travis McGee books. And I read them all chronologically. And to read those books is a snap, a moving picture snapshot of America over yeah. 20 tumultuous years. And he's of the time in the 60s. And then that last book, Lonely Silver Rain, yeah. the world is harsher, but there are more drugs, it's more violent, the environment's been destroyed, Florida's different, and he's confused in it, right? And that transition is so powerful as a reader that I love, I mean, I love knowing that it's in the hands of someone who also gets that. Yeah, I often wonder if McDonald didn't know he was going to die. He he went he went up to, I think, Pittsburgh to get a, a heart operation and he died in, 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 on the table, I believe. And he wasn't that old, but it's the perfect ending to that series. Um, so yeah, there's that. I'm, 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 I'm working. And we know you're always working. We yeah. never have doubt about that. And are there, are there books on the horizon as well? Or you've been busy? I've been busy. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing this, um, until I age out of it, which probably won't be long from now. And then <laughs> the plan is to continue writing books until my death. Well, I, it's good to have it all mapped out. <laughs> George, thank you so much for joining us for the fourth time. We can't wait for the fifth. And thank you so much for this show. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, congratulations on it. Thanks a lot. I love, I love what you guys are doing, man. I wanted I wanted to be on the show, so thank you. Well, also, George, like this is a moment. Sorry, Chris, I know we're done, but <laughs> we have to revisit just that, like, I think you referred to Chris as, as the little guy with the camels, which yeah. I, we want to call him now. From, <laughs> I'm going to call him that from now. Yeah, we, we can let the... Okay, so just to set the scene, we have now three or four times told an anecdote yeah. about you from our perspective. I don't know if we've ever given you the floor, um, and I think you've earned it. Okay, thank you. You guys, you guys are stuck on this thing. I was doing a book tour 20 years ago. <laughs> I came through. Was it LA or San Francisco? It was New no, York. It was, it was New York. It was the um, it like was Lower Union Manhattan Square. Burns. It was no, it wasn't Square. Okay. It was, it was lower, it? I think. It was, it, was, it was like the 23rd. It was like Chelsea. Okay. All right. So but who's remembering? Who's captain? First of all, I didn't say the little guy. I said the guy who smoked camels. There you go. But Chris I called that. me grandpa. That's what really got me. <laughs> no, that's not what happened. <laughs> and I am. Hey, by the way, I'm a grandfather now. <laughs> I was 42 years old there or something, something, something like that. Uh. Anyways, so back then, back then when you did a book tour, you did like, in, in 30 days, you did like 28 cities. So every day I'd get up. Usually I have to get up at like five and catch a plane to somewhere else. And you guys came in. I knew who you were, but I didn't know you guys. You wanted to go out and drink and watch basketball. I mean, you, to be clear, you knew who we were because of our energy. Yeah. We, we were nothing. Like We had not done anything. We were just super fans. But you could tell we, that we, we were in Pelicano's parlance. We were still in the Nick Stefano stage yeah. of our development, and you were late book Derek Strange. Okay, we get we get that now, but at the time, <laughs> it we was didn't. just like this was meant to be, man. The tournament is on; it's March Madness. <laughs> I know, and all, all I wanted to do was go home and drink a beer and watch a game, yeah. so that I could get up and at a, because when you're on a tour like that, one night of debauchery can can sabotage the entire book tour. And and I didn't know you guys well enough to know like you're gonna go to a bar, you're gonna start buying me shots. Yep. So it's hard to turn them down. Look at you know Chris I mean? saying no. <laughs> yes. 
We are saying we are speaking to you now safely from a v- pronounced one beer while watching TV stage of life. I was shaking my head because I was like, shots were light work back then. <laughs> he would have been lucky to get off his shots. You, the, the, we would have been running the, the Princeton story. offense by the end of the night. <laughs> you know what I mean? You were you were nice to us. I think is our yeah. takeaway. It, it was in no way mockery. We were like, <laughs> that guy's got it figured out. And we just, we're not there yet. Yeah. And we're still not there, but you're All still right. setting, you're setting the course for us, which we respect. All right, we're, we're square now. <laughs> okay. good. We, we, I'm glad we gave you your, uh, your opportunity for a rebuttal. George Pelicanos, thank you so much for doing the watch, man. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, George. Hope to talk to you again soon. Take care. Okay, bye.